0: crossway church sermon audio good morning crossway church it's so good to be together please open your bibles to isaiah chapter 40 we're going to be in verses 12 to 31 today hello to those watching at home we love you and miss you can't wait to have you return to us soon hopefully in the near future but we'll see what the lord has isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 to 31 Now, isn't it interesting that the Scripture has so many different word pictures to help us understand our identity, who we are as Christians, as a group and as individuals within that group. Each metaphor from Scripture gives a nuance or a sense of what it means for us to belong to God in Christ Jesus. So here's just a couple of examples. First, Acts Nine verses 1-2, to but Saul still breathing threats. Remember, before he was Paul, before he was an apostle, he was uh, someone breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, said if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Did you know that? We are considered those of the way. That gives a sense that Christians are on the right road. We're on the way to the Lord or following in his steps. And I like this also because it connects with our church name, crossway. We're people in the way of the cross. Here's another. Therefore, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, rather. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So we're ambassadors for Christ. We're envoys. We make an appeal to the world. God's appeal. It's not our message. It's God's. And he gives it to us. Turns us into ambassadors. And when, we, when we're when we out there, when we have the opportunity, we share this word from God... We call everyone to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And there are tons of these word pictures in scriptures, I think well over a hundred, and they help us understand what it means to be God's people in this world. But here is one for us today. Here's a word picture or, or a metaphor for us that we should focus on today. And this comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Exiles. Now, is that not fascinating? By the Holy Spirit, Peter calls us exiles. Exiles. That's for us, those who believe in the Lord Jesus and follow Him in the new covenant age. In other words, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, He's seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for the final trumpet sound to return and to usher in the final, the final age. We're exiles in this world. It's not all that we are, right? But it's a big part of how we are to interpret life, to think like a Christian in this world. Part of, part of what it means to be a Christian in this world, a big part of what it means to be a Christian in this world, is to recognize that we don't belong in this world. We don't belong to this world. Now, we've already talked a great deal about exile through the prophecy of Isaiah to this point. Isaiah lives at the time of the exile of the Israelites, those that lived north of Jerusalem and Judea. They were exiled around 720 or in 722 BC when the Israelites were carried off by the big, bad Assyrians. And then they were relocated to many places put among many different peoples whose language they did not understand. They had to adapt and begin uh, they had to adapt to and begin a new life stripped of the comforts of their language, the comforts of their culture and all that was familiar to them. It was the only way for them to survive in this whole exile strategy by Assyria was actually a common approach to subduing the peoples that you had conquered and assimilating them into your new world order rather than giving them a chance to kind of uh, join forces together against you. You kind of broke them like that. But now, in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is prophesying about what's going to happen to the Judeans. These are the southern Israelites that had... Remained more faithful to the Lord than the northern Israelites had. But frankly, as we've seen already, not by much. And so the Judeans are also going to be exiled for their rebellion against the Lord. But their exile will come after Isaiah's life. He's not going to experience it, but he is going to prophesy about it. And you see, Isaiah knows that that the Judeans... He knows that they're going to be exiled and he knows that when they are exiled and when that they're living in exile, they're going to have some big questions. They're going to have haunting questions. They're going to have massive doubts. They will struggle to be faithful. They will have a hard time interpreting what has happened to them and what is happening to them. They're going to have a hard time understanding how is it, Lord, that we are to live as exiles under pagans in this world. Rather than in our own land and country. Rather than in the promised land. Rather than with the boundary lines that you have set for us in pleasant places. Why? How can we? What are we supposed to be in exile? Some of them will have been carried off. They had lived in the land of promise, but then were carried off. Others will be born into captivity because their exile will last for generations. And those that are born into captivity will never know the land of promise or the temple in Jerusalem or the annual feast times when God's people gathered to worship him on his, on his holy mountain. They will have questions. But God will have answers, just as He does for us today. And so, what does it all mean for us? Well, it means the same thing for us as it meant for them. You see, exiles have questions, and God has answers. What do we do? We listen to those answers, and we're comforted in this time of exile. You see, we tend to think that the answer for every situation that we face, has to be a change in our situation. We we tend to think that unless there's a change in our situation, a change for the better, then there has been no answer. But that's, that's expressly, it's specifically not true. The comfort we need in our exilic state are not the answer, or, or, or rather, excuse me, are the answers that God gives us, not the changes that we think need to happen. Do we understand that? Can I say that again? The answers that we need in our exilic state are the ones that God gives us, not the changes that we think need to take place. So what are you facing? Like we heard the word earlier, and as Steve reiterated, what are the difficulties, what are the exilic doubts for you? And what kind of answers are you looking for? A change? Maybe. But more importantly, most importantly, the answers that God gives to you and to us. Are you listening? Are you listening to him? The answers that God gives us are often knowledge about him. I know that's not what we want to hear. The answers we want are the positive changes to our situation from our perspective that we desire. But often the answers that God gives us, if we're listening, we'll take comfort from. Those answers are about who He is. Knowledge about who He is. About what He's like and what He's done and what He's going to do at some time and these are the answers that if we listen to now fellow exiles we too can be comforted even while we're in exile Now, the Israelite exiles in Assyria, they've got questions. And the future Judean exiles, they're going to have the same questions. They've got three questions. And as Steve taught us last week, from the beginning of chapter 40, chapter 40 begins a major new section in the book of Isaiah. It serves as an introduction. Chapter 40 is really an introduction to this next major section. We're going to get into this section more, obviously, in the coming weeks. But this introduction, this chapter 40, contains three answers To three questions from the exiles. Three answers to three questions from the exiles. And the first question that the ancient exiles asked was this. Does God want to deliver us? Does He want to? Is He so inclined? Is it His heart? Is it His desire? And after all, they might have thought God may be done with us. It was our rebellion that put us in this situation. God warned us hundreds, thousands of years before our exile that He would do this to us if we rebelled against Him. And He was very patient, so maybe He's done with us. And in last week's text, Steve answered this question, uh, verses 1 through 11. And the answer to that question From the text, from God's word, from Isaiah's prophecy is a resounding yes. Yes. Of course God wants to deliver his people. Of course he wants to. That's why he writes, right? uh, Isaiah writes right there in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Of course God. Wants to deliver his people. Never doubt it. Have you ever wondered if God wanted to deliver you? Of course he wants to deliver you. If you belong to him, he desires that you would be out of your pain, out of hardship, out of trouble. This is his heart to you. And you know what? Even if you've rebelled against him. Even if you've never trusted him yet. But you hear me right now today. Preaching God's word. And exalting Jesus Christ as the Savior of all who trust Him. Do you know what His heart is toward you? Look at this from 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friend, if you have not yet, when you trust him. You do not yet belong to Him. He wants to deliver you. He wants to save you. Won't you trust the Lord Jesus today and turn from sin and be baptized in His name? And brother and sisters, believers, my exilic family, know this. God wants to deliver us. Oh, it's His heart. It's His desire. That's how much he loves us. Listen and be comforted. God wants to deliver his people out of their exile. Now we're going to look at two further questions that the ancient exiles were asking. And I think we may be asking the Lord. We might here today be asking the Lord the same questions as exiles in this world today. So first of all, uh, can God deliver us? Can God deliver us? So first we ask, does he want to? Now, and, and the answer is yes, now we're asking, can he deliver us? And, and this comes from verses 12 through 26. And you know, as Christians, we read Isaiah now. We're greatly removed from it. Uh, the exile that we face in this world, frankly, is, it's, it's probably more daunting in some ways, but it, it may not feel quite as, uh, real. You know, we haven't been carried off. To another country where we don't know the language and nothing is familiar to us. And so we read Isaiah. We read the historical books of the Old Testament today. And we read the very clear words of Scripture that teach us about the rebellion of Israel. And we see that Isaiah is calling them to repent of their reliance on false gods and on foreign nations. And calling them to trust the Lord. And we can tend to look at it and think, have you done this? Look at it and think, why don't they just obey? Why? I mean, it's so simple. Like, Why don't they just trust? And the truth is that for every faithful prophet like Isaiah, we've got to keep this in mind, there seem to be many more false prophets, at least 10 to 1, and the false prophets were telling them the exact opposite of Isaiah. So as Isaiah told them to turn from their trust in foreign nations to save them from Assyria, The multiple false prophets told them that they should trust alliances with Egypt and other foreign nations. And that God would bless that alliance and save them from Assyria through those alliances. And again, there's nothing new, right? We see again, once again, there's nothing new under the sun. There are always competing voices about what is true and right and good. And therefore, we better make certain... That we have the truth, right? There's a lot of people today playing games with the truth. They they look at something that's absolutely obvious and apparent. But through logical jujitsu and broken false reasoning, which at the end of the day, they know deep down is not true. They look reality in the face and they say, nope, that's not the way it is. Is there anything that can explain the whole transgenderism uh, discussion? Really, it's not a discussion. The way society has embraced transgenderism. And so, uh, one of the helpful notes that comes from that book, that new book from Carl Truman, "The, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self," is the idea that you know, if you say, if someone said a long time ago, not, not that long ago, if someone said, "I'm a I'm a a, a woman trapped in a man's body." It wouldn't be taken seriously. But now if someone says that, oh, you're brave and I need to take that serious and you really need to be connected to your authentic self. And all of a sudden, what is real, everyone around them is, is expected to pretend as, as if we live in some sort of alternative reality. this is nothing new either, and and it's nothing other than the rejection of God and the idea of a creator. And people are doing this all the time in, in many ways. People want to pretend that they don't live in this reality. We're the exiles here. We have to be realistic about it. They're the ones who feel at home in the world, and yet they pretend and want some different alternative reality. And it's because they can't bear the truth. And you know what? God wants to save them. He wants to save them through our ambassadorship, our life in this world, and our proclamation in this world. He desires that people would be saved. And so you and I, we cannot afford, no person can afford to play games with reality act like truth doesn't exist. To pretend that there's not a creator God who made all this. Who's very involved with his world and his creatures. And will call all men to account on the final day. We cannot afford to play games with life that deny these realities. No matter what this world is saying. We're exiles in this world. But going back to those Israelites, if if an Israelite at the time had not been humbly repentant, we could easily, you know, they're in exile, but they're not really repentant. We could easily see them doubting and saying something like, We did what the prophets said, and Yahweh didn't save us. He did not deliver us. Here we are in captivity. Perhaps the Assyrian gods are stronger. Or later, for the Judeans, perhaps the Babylonian gods are stronger. Perhaps we should worship them. And, and they're saying, Yahweh didn't save us, therefore he's unable to deliver us. It's a question of ability. He cannot do it. I just don't think he can. And we should therefore look for salvation in something else. And how much of that, how much of that is at the bottom of unbelief today? God, God can't really. He can't really. But God is willing to answer this question of his ability for both them and for us today. So let me read verses 12 to 20 for you, and then we're going to make a couple of notes, okay? I'm going to move through this pretty quick. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 through 20, I'll move through it fairly quickly, so please follow along. It is beautiful and powerful scripture, and you really want to engage it as much as you can. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are as accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts forth silver chains. He was too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It's beautiful and powerful poetry. We could break it down into four sections. First, it begins with assertions as rhetorical questions. Don't you love rhetorical questions? These are rhetorical questions. In other words, the answer is obvious. You should know the answer as soon as I raise it. So questions like, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, well, I didn't, and you didn't, God did. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? No one, God didn't consult with anyone. He's above it all. And so on. The point of these rhetorical questions with their obvious answers is that God alone is the creator. A critical truth that we need to stand firm on in this world today that rejects him as such. So you get this: these rhetorical questions, these assertions that God alone is the creator. Then, second, there's an affirmation that the Lord is the ultimate ruler over all the nations, the ultimate ruler. Behold, the Scripture says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, one drop from a bucket. That's what all the nations, are. all the nations gathered together, are like before Him. And then, he, and then we read, all the nations are as nothing before Him. In other words, God is the ruler of rulers. And so after that, there's another rhetorical question. But really, it's a rhetorical invitation to compare God with anything else. Basically, okay, take anything else and compare God. So verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? And the rhetorical invitation in doing that is the rhetorical answer is, no one. You can't. There is nothing to compare him to. Which is why we don't make idols, right? The closest thing to compare him to on earth is humanity. We're made in his likeness and image, but we are not him, right? Finally, there's the claim of absolute superiority over every other god. In the final verse that we read, we see a poor person giving all, his, giving his all... To his resources, his, his efforts to craft something made of his own hands from material that he pulls out of creation. He's got nothing to do with this thing. He just, he's just aligning it. He gets the material from creation and he puts it together in a certain way. And this is to demonstrate that every other God is no God whatsoever. God is absolutely superior over every God. So now, I went through that breakdown, because we're basically going to see it repeated in verses 21 through 26. And so in these verses, you get a repetition of these four sections to help the Israelites understand that God is able to deliver them. And so as I read verses 21 to 26, keep an eye out for, number one, the rhetorical questions that assert that God alone is the sole creator of all things. Number two, an affirmation that the Lord is the one true ruler over all rulers. So earthly rulers, he rules over them all and over all nations. Number three, a rhetorical invitation to compare God with anything else. You're going to see that as well. And number four, I should do it like that. Number four, the claim of God's absolute superiority over every other God. And in that last instance, in in the portion we read, that's demonstrated by handcrafted idols. But in the portion we're about to read, in this instance, it's the heavenly host because unbelieving peoples looked up at the heavens and thought that every star was a god. And that's going to get addressed here as well. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 through 26. Keep an eye out for these four sections. Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning... Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of His might, because He is strong in power, not one, not one star, not one of the heavenly host is missing. He names them all. Given all this information, let's ask the question that exiles ask. Is God able to deliver us? Is God able to deliver us when society has thrown God away? At least they try to. When they act as if He doesn't exist. When they ignore the reality. When they seek to create an alternative reality that, that is delightfully without a creator and a judge and a God and a savior that we need so badly. Is God able to deliver us in a society like that? How about a society that has less and less respect for Christians? Less and less regard for God's people. More and more seeing us, viewing us as as bad people, as immoral people, as enemies of the state. Little by little. Can He deliver us when we're in exile in a place like that? Yes, yes, he can. Because he alone is God. Everything that is made, God made. Every ruler that rules is under his rule. There is no comparison of God to anything or anyone else. He is superior to the uttermost. And really this sums up Isaiah's answer to the question, can God deliver us? You see, Isaiah's answer to the doubting exiles is not... It's not Yahweh is the best God. It's not the Lord is, is a better Lord. His answer is God is unique. He is above all. He is, as we say, transcendent. His answer is not Yahweh is a better God. His answer is Yahweh is the only God. He's the only God. And when you have the only God who wants to deliver you and can deliver you, well... You're in the best place on earth. See, brothers and sisters, exiles have questions and God has answers. So listen, listen and be comforted. We've gotten through, Steve got through one question last week and and the text through the text there. We got through a second question here. Let's take a look at the third question here. And it's this, will God deliver us? So now we know that he, he wants to. It's his heart. We know that he can. But the only final question is, will he? Will he? I remember Steve Jobs talking about Steve Wozniak, who created this this tremendous form of an early operating system uh, called BASIC, a programming language. and. Uh, he had done certain things with an editor that was supposed to be fantastic, and, and, but he never finished it. And the, and the interviewer asked Jobs, why didn't you finish it? And he said, he said, it's one of the mysteries of the world. We, I don't know why he never finished it. And so, you know, we can have that at times. It's like, wow, there's, there's the, it seems to be the will or the desire and there seem to be the resources to get the job done, but the job never gets done. And so that's the question for us. Will God deliver us? It's a question for these exiles. It's a question for us. Will it actually happen? And have you ever had that inclination? If it hasn't happened yet, it never will. It can actually be helpful to have that big dose of reality, right? Of realism for many things in life. For instance, if a young man says he wants to marry a young lady, but he never asks her, and he never buys a ring, and he never sets a date, and he lets things drag on and on, some of us at some point would be inclined to say, you need to get out of this. It's important to live in reality. And that can happen in many, that that can be helpful in many ways. But, but... When we seek to apply our standards of time, our horizontal, our human standards of time on the one and only, the one above all, the transcendent one, not the better God, but the only God, then we're stepping way out of our league. Can you see that? Can you see that? When we're, when we're trying to, to get God on our standards of time, We're stepping out of our league. You know, it's fascinating watching the NCAA tournament basketball, March Madness. It's always so fun when a serious underdog wins a few games. I have chosen Villanova to win this year. I know that's very unlikely, but it is every time they win, isn't it? But often, some of the lower-ranked teams that get in You know, they start the game and you can just see within minutes, you you can see it within minutes that they do not belong on on the same court as another team. And you, you almost get the sense that they know it too and that they're embarrassed to be there. You almost feel like they're playing like, I'm sorry everybody, I'm sorry I'm here. You almost get that sense of it. And frankly, that's how we should feel when we try to hold the Lord to our standards of timing. I'm sorry, Lord, what am I thinking? How silly of me, how unbelieving of me, how unhelpful to my own soul. Because after all, remember what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. At the very least, we can see here that, yeah, God's not working with the the same time frame as us. We can't even conceive. I mean, we can think of what a thousand years is, but we can't conceive of living a thousand years. And that seems inconceivable to us, right? But for God... It's a very common concept, a very common idea. It's, it's, it's like a day to us. It's a thousand years to him. And, and so we see that. We see his time frame is, is not the same. But we also see here in this passage from Second Peter that God's working out a plan over, over his time frame, isn't he? And if we can't understand his time frame, we certainly cannot understand his plan. Now, we're going to see rather quickly in this text that God will deliver his people. He's committed to doing so. And that should bring us great comfort. So the answer to all three of these questions, which are pretty rhetorical in and of themselves, aren't they? The answer is yes. Will God deliver his people? Yes. Yes, he will. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 through 31, the end of the chapter. Isaiah 40, verse 27 and following. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Something this text brings up reminds me of something that I've been turning over in my mind for a long time because I struggle with it. Why is it that we like to complain? Why is it that we like to complain? I mean, we complain, right? Lord help us, but we do. We know that we shouldn't. We know it's wrong. We can see that at the bottom of complaint, there's accusation against the Lord. We see that from the Israelites when they're in the wilderness with Moses, when they blame him for everything, when they complain at him, they're really accusing God of not wanting to deliver them or not being able to deliver them or not delivering them. But it's not just that we complain, brothers and sisters. I think it's that we like to complain. There's something in our flesh. That takes a perverse pleasure in it. It makes us feel powerful. It gives us a sense of standing, of authority in our world. It puts us in that seat of critic, of standing, of authority. It puts blame outside of ourselves. It makes us a sympathetic individual. In other words, we need sympathy because something owned untoward has happened to me, and I'm a victim. You see, I have the right to complain. And how how much like the world is that today, with with whole theories and philosophies based around the concept of victimhood that get that get uh, that get established and then nuanced to death. And we hear about them constantly. Everyone's a victim in some horrible way. Please don't misunderstand. There are victims and there are legitimate complaints in life and they have to be dealt with. But it's no way to live, is it? Not, certainly not if you belong to the Lord. The truth is the truth. The vast majority of complaints that emanate from the human heart are illegitimate. Like the Israelites in the wilderness. Not all complaints, but the vast majority. Because we just pile them up. They come so quick. They flow right out of us. They're they're day by day. And so when God says to these exiles, and when he says to us through them, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say that? And my right is disregarded by God. Why, Why do you say God doesn't care that I'm being wronged? He doesn't care. When God says to them, why do you say that? He's addressing their illegitimate complaints. He's saying, what you're complaining about is not true. And I know you're blaming me at the bottom of this. And you shouldn't do that. Why do you do it? Why are you doing it? But the Lord's correction to them and to us, it's not destructive. It's healing. It's loving. It's blessing because in his correction, the Lord reminds them that he is not weary. He reminds them, he says, okay, do you, don't, he, say, he says, why do you say that? In other words, don't say that. And then he goes on to help them think right, to give them knowledge about himself and who he is and what he's done. And in His correction, the Lord reminds them that he is, He's not weary or not un, unable. He doesn't get weary. He hasn't lost His energy or His power. He's not sleeping and inattentive to their plight. He has not it's, it's not just that He wants to do it. He has the resources to do it. That, but maybe He won't do it. That's not what's going on. He's, he's going to do it. Rather, He's ever vigilant. He's not inattentive to our plight. He knows our plight he's ever vigilant. And then when you see the text there, you also see that he has unsearchable understanding. That goes back to his plan again. It goes back to his plan. We cannot understand what God is doing. I know we want to understand what God is doing. We can even at times demand to know God, because we, we do this with other people, right? Well, hey, if you're not going to do this thing for me, at least tell me why. If I can't make the team... At least tell me why I didn't make the team. If you didn't hire me, I didn't get that promotion. At least tell me why. We try to do that with God. We try to turn the tables on him. If you're not going to do this the way I want in the time I want, if you're not going to deliver me now in this way, at least tell me why. And God very patiently, very lovingly says, why, why, do you, why, why are you saying I'm wronging you? He says, listen, I'm ever vigilant. And my ways are unsearchable. You can't handle them. This isn't a hundred piece puzzle. It's not a thousand piece puzzle. This is a trillion piece puzzle. You could never put it together. And we should take comfort in the knowledge that God is not puzzled by his own puzzle. He knows exactly where every piece goes and when he should put it in its place to complete the puzzle just at the right time, and make that picture just beautiful. That was true for them. It's true for us today, brothers and sisters. And so what should we do then? What should we do? We wait. Yes, exiles, we wait. Wait for what? We wait for the Lord to unfold His plan. You know, here's His plan. Think about this. these uh, Israelite and Judean exiles, they, they longed for what we get to see. Because God says, wait, wait. Because in 700 or 600 or 500 years, I'm going to send my son into the world. He's going to give his life for sinners and everyone who trusts him will be forgiven and they'll be brought close to me. And now instead of going up to a temple on Mount Zion, I'll put my Holy Spirit in you. And you'll forever come and dine at my table. Yes, even while you're exiles, you'll you'll eat the meal of the exile, but someday it'll be a grand wedding banquet. And it's all pointing to that at that time. Think about this. Think. Think about this when the Lord says, when when he seeks to answer the question, can God do this? He tells us all about his greatness, his might, his power, his his rulership, his sovereignty, his, uh, his, his transcendence. And now when we ask the question, Will He, will he deliver us? He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And the Lord Jesus, so He's transcended, but then the Lord Jesus breaks into this world. And he lives a human life. He he lives us. He knows our trials and bears our burdens and faces our temptations and goes to the cross and gives himself as a sacrifice for us. You see, you wait on the Lord. And He unfolds His plan at just the right time. And the same is true now. Even in a society where it might be harder to live as a Christian. It might be getting more difficult. He's unfolding His plan. And you know what we do? We wait. We wait to see the appearance of our Lord. In the meantime, He strengthens us as we wait. He strengthens us as we wait. I want to ask John to come. And we're going to take up communion in just a few moments together. So ushers, if you would please come and begin. Uh, Oh, I guess we already have the elements, don't we? I forgot we had, we're, we're, (laughs) I forgot we're doing this during COVID. I forgot about that. Now for those who, uh, communion, the Lord's table is for those who have trusted our Lord, been baptized in His name. And if you have not yet, it's it's time. It's time. It's time. It's time. Stop pretending. Don't, don't pretend to live in an alternative universe than the one that God has made. It's time to repent, to trust Jesus Christ, to be baptized in His name, and to join us at the Lord's table. But for all those that have trusted Him and baptized in His name, please join us now at the Lord's table. Think about this for a minute, right before we partake together. Think about this. Adam and Eve, they sinned, and they were booted out of the garden. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their rebellion. And then Israel and, and Judah, basically all the ancient Israelites, they're exiled from the promised land. God gives them the promised land. They're living there for thousands of years. And, and, and some of that time is really glorious. Most of that time, they're very disobedient. God eventually takes it away from them. He exiles them. And they're kicked out because of their rebellion. And now there isn't on this earth a Garden of Eden. And there isn't on this earth a promised land anymore. And the whole earth, which was supposed to be full of the glory of God, it is ultimately. But you remember when Adam and Eve were told, go and multiply, fill the earth. God's image was to be spread all over the earth, and he was to receive all the glory. Instead of that, humanity's fallen, the world is broken. And now this whole world's a place of exile for the people of God. But think of this. Our Lord Jesus enters the world a place that should have been home for Him. But He's in exile in it just like we are and if our Lord who made all this is in exile in this place how much more are we the citizens of this world took Him and crucified Him and He let them do it so that He could give us a home an eternal home We may be exiles in this world, but we belong to Christ Jesus. And we are not exiles in his kingdom, but we have a home with him. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.